Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest has a fascinating in-house role and is a leading voice for the LGBTQ plus community in the legal industry. Wesley Bizzle serves as Senior Assistant General Counsel and Managing Director of Political Law and Ethics Programs, External Affairs for Altria Client Services, Inc. He oversees a comprehensive compliance program covering the regulation of government affairs, providing advice and guidance on political law compliance for more than 75 jurisdictions. Just as important for our purposes, though, Wesley is incredibly active in promoting diversity and inclusion within the legal and corporate communities. He is a founding member and serves on the steering committee for Altria's LGBTQ plus employee research group and is the immediate past president of the National LGBTQ plus Bar Association. Join us as we talk all things in-house, how the pandemic affected his work and LGBTQ plus inclusion. Wesley, how are you? Thanks for joining. I am doing very well. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a delight. I look forward to our conversation. I gather we're catching you from San Francisco, so we're getting you uh, first thing in the morning. Thank you for making the time. Happy to do it. First question I have for you is, you've had a wonderful, very interesting career. You currently work for Altria. You'd work for Winston Strawn before that, and then worked in the government before that, and obviously law school. You have your master's in social work, which I guess I don't know if that came before law school or after law school. During, actually. During. What intrigued you about becoming a lawyer? Why law school and why a law school master's of social work joint program? So when I arrived at college, I was interested in doing broadcast journalism, but ended up taking a class. I dropped a class, needed a class to add and my second semester freshman year, and one of my friends suggested this class that he had, uh, which was an introduction to criminal justice taught by the former warden at Attica, who was brought in after the Attica prison riots in the 1970s. And I fell in love with the idea of criminal justice issues. I had had that interest when I was younger, but with no lawyers in my families, I didn't really know what a lawyer did. And kept taking those types of classes, ended up switching my major to a uh, what we called a justice major with an emphasis in penology uh, and prison reform. And so I was really interested in, in social justice type issues. And when I decided to go to law school, I was also looking for something to differentiate me and to provide some you know, a deeper understanding on the social policy side of things. And so I ended up cobbling together a joint degree program between two different universities to have a master's in social work with an emphasis in social policy, which was a part of the degree program that they had there for the master's program. Oh, that had to be fascinating. Your master's is from Catholic and law school from Georgetown. Cobbling together must have been, uh, is, sounds like the apt term for that. That had to be an unusual path. Uh, it definitely was. And, you know, there weren't very many of us actually in the, the social policy master's program, but there's also a, a definitive difference in the way a social worker teaches and a law professor teaches as well as you might, you might imagine. I, I can imagine that must have been one being a more, more, a little more empathetic and the other maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I could I could only assume the uh, social work uh, teacher being the more empathetic because if you're law school <laughs> professors or anything like mine, empathy is not the word I would use to describe them. Exactly. Exactly. I want to talk about your current work with Altria, but before we get there, I noticed you spent, if I'm reading the materials correctly, you spent a little bit of time working with the Federal Bureau of Prisons? I was a I was a law clerk with the Federal Bureau of Prisons while I was in law school, yes. I assume that arose out of your criminal justice interests that you were you're talking about. It did. It did. I had I had been, you know, long interested in prison issues and had also worked on on prison issues when I was working for two senators with the the US Senate. And so it was just sort of a natural progression of that as well. Okay. You worked for Winston Strawn for a while and you've been at Altria for 15 years where you're currently Assistant General Counsel External Affairs and Director of Political Law and Ethics Programs. It's a good thing we don't use business cards anymore. That would fill up a business card. Tell us a little bit about what you do as Director of Political Law and Ethics Programs. Sure. Um, so um, I, the, it, it's actually a little more complicated because my my full title is, is Senior Assistant General Counsel and Managing Director of Political Law and Ethics. So uh, adding a couple more words to that even. So I, I have essentially sort of the Chief Compliance Officer role for our Political Law and Ethics Program. So I, both from a legal perspective and an operational perspective, run and manage and develop the compliance program that deals with all of our company's interactions with government and government officials. And that must be a challenge building such a program and getting people to adapt their behavior. What sort of change mechanisms have you found useful in getting people to go along with what they what they should be doing anyway? Sure. I mean, I think a, a couple things are super helpful. One is, you know, being seen as an ally and not as someone who's trying to obstruct progress. And so what I have long told my clients, both in private practice and, and now in-house practice, is that I'm here to help them achieve their goals in a way that doesn't cause us legal reputational risk. And so understanding what their goals are and, you know, I, I sort of see myself like a crossing guard. So I want to help you get across the street. I may not let you cross in the middle of the street or jaywalk, but you know, my goal is to help you get to where you want to be and doing it in a safe way for both you and the company. And so that's one way to do it. The second way is really having people understand what the consequences are if something does go wrong. And so there are, fortunately for me, uh, maybe not fortunately for the people uh, involved, but a number of examples that pop up really on a weekly basis of companies stumbling or breaking the law even in this area. And so highlighting what that means and what that does to the company and how it impacts the company's work and activities is also very helpful. You know, one of my, my favorite sayings is, is never let a crisis go to waste. And so whether it's your own crisis or somebody else's crisis, highlighting those activities and the repercussions from what happens in those cases is really helpful. Do you use uh, outside service providers, outside law firms, outside consultants, outside experts in your compliance program? I do. So I um, this is not an area of the law that you know, a lot of people come out of law school wanting to do. And that certainly wasn't the case for me. But there is a, a small cadre of lawyers who do this work. And so I work with them and they help me sort of stay abreast of the changes across the country. So, you know, I, I deal with really about 70 
jurisdictions at the federal, state, and local levels. And probably about a quarter of those, you know, maybe 20% to 25% in any given year change their laws in, in this area. And so staying on top of that is very important. That And that's one of the things that outside counsel helps me do. How has the pandemic affected your ability to deliver services? I'm ultimately going to ask you the same question with your leadership of the Bar Association, but let's just start with uh, your day-to-day working at Altria. How's that changed to, I assume, mostly virtual, at least for the beginning of the pandemic? How's that impacted the way you do your work? So, you know, I think especially those of us who have a compliance-related practice, staying abreast of what is going on and in touch with your clients, both from an informational standpoint, but really even also a relationship standpoint is imperative. And so it really does create a situation where you have to be more diligent. And I have been working remotely since 2019 based on a a relocation to the West Coast. But previously, my office was in our Washington, D.C. office and next to, I would say, probably about a third of my clients. So sharing an office with about a third of the people who were my primary clients. And in those cases, obviously, you're in the hallways, you're walking back and forth, and you can catch up with people and they can grab you and say, hey, I'm glad you're here because I was thinking about this issue, or I'm glad you're walking by because the three of us were talking about this and want your legal perspective on it. And so it does create a situation where you need more intentionality and you need to be more thoughtful. You can't just be sitting at your desk waiting for the clients to come to you. You've got to, whether it's through formal check-ins or just a quick email check-in, really be intentional about how you're interacting with your clients. Let me ask you the same question. You've been involved in the DNI space for a long time, including serving for a couple of years as president of the National LGBTQ Plus Bar. And if I've got the timing right, you started in 2019 and served for a couple of years. So you got a little bit of pre-pandemic and a lot of pandemic. You're now leading an organization. You're relatively new to leading the organization. How did you shift modalities in terms of how to manage and lead an organization in that moment? Well, some of it was fortuitous in in planning and, and what I wanted to do when I came into the leadership role. And I'd been on the board for probably about six years before I came into the presidency role. And one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we did was create better connections, both on an individual level and on a board level. And we were not meeting super regularly at the time. I think we, we had generally about three meetings a year, two of those in person, and then a uh, one that was a teleconference. And so when I came in, I amped up our meeting schedule to 10 or 11 meetings about once a month that we were meeting. And we moved at the time to video conferencing at the urging of my executive director. And we have a bar staff who is scattered across the country. And so she had been using video conferences for a while to connect with our staff. And I, to be honest, was not a, a, you know, in, in March of 2019, when we were rolling this out, wasn't a huge fan of it. But after a couple meetings, certainly saw the benefit as we all did in, in March of March and April of 2020, when we all pivoted to remote. And so having those connections has really helped us as a bar tackle some what could be financially difficult issues for any organization at this time going through. So we, like all other bar associations, have a large 
annual meeting that we had to pivot for two years to a remote and virtual environment. And that meeting brings in the bulk of our revenue for the year. And so understanding and having our board understand what we needed to do and how we needed to pivot and continue to provide services to our members, provide help, especially our law student members who were also going through a tough time as their law schools were pivoting to remote classes as well. And so having those connections really helped us focus on the issues at hand and to have some you know, honest conversations. And I think we've all found that having, while exhausting, video conferences are much more productive than just being on a teleconference like we had previously done because you get more people paying attention and it's easier to read the room. It's still hard versus a physical setting, but it's easier to sort of see where people are and, and get an understanding of where the conversation, you know, may be going and, and what make people uncomfortable or where their concerns might be. And so similarly, I think the other thing is that individual connection. piece. So I made a, a very concerted effort as I was coming into my position to check in individually with each member of our board and to continue to have those meetings periodically during my term. And that, you know, for those people who may not be comfortable speaking up in large groups or may be reticent to share something, those one-on-one meetings are super important to get that level of feedback that you might not get in a large group setting. You have a couple of challenges in moving to a virtual. One is the logistical, practical challenges. How do you manage Lavender Law Conference in a virtual setting versus a real setting? How do you do the meetings? Did it also have an impact on any of the fundamental mission or programs of the association? And did you have to hold on some? Did it accelerate others? Or were you able to keep the pace of programming and mission fulfillment as it was? For the most part, we were able to keep the pace. We have a DEI consulting practice where we come into law schools and corporations and legal departments with a DEI expert who uh, is part of our staff to look and make sure that the organization is is fully welcoming to LGBTQ plus attorneys, uh, specifically with a, a special emphasis on our trans attorneys and our non-binary or gender non-conforming attorneys. And, you know, that obviously shifted from having these in-person events and, and meetings and discussions to to a virtual environment. You know, we did have some of our our awards programs that we would typically have in a, in a live setting, we did pause on those. But for the most part, we continued at pace. Some of the other work increased. So, you know, I think we get a lot of one-on-one interaction with law students. And we have strived over the past several years to really build an active law student program and presence. And so these are through affiliate organizations at, at the law schools. So we're not in charge of them. They're run by law students. But we help them and then help, you know, troubleshooting any problems that they have. And I think, you know, a lot of, I think we saw more potentially troubling behavior from law students or from law schools for LGBTQ plus law students during this time. And so that sort of interaction. But what do you mean by that? You know, I think in situations where people are, are more willing to engage in what, you know, we might call sort of, you know, implicit bias behaviors or microaggressions in an online setting than they, they would be in a face-to-face setting. 
And how do you deal with that? How do you counteract that behavioral trend? So, I mean, that's certainly a larger issue. I mean, you know, our focus is on the individual at the time uh, and helping them through through that. I think, you know, holistically, we as a society have certainly over the last two years have felt what happens and seen what happens when, you know, interpersonal connections get disrupted in some form or fashion. And we've certainly seen spikes in hate crimes and hate incidents throughout the country, both for people of color and LGBTQ plus people and especially Asian Americans. And I think it is a hard thing to address. As long as we've had computers, we've had cyberbullying. And it has, you know, I think escalated to, you know, an alarming pace that the experts would say uh, that has occurred over the past few years. Let's talk a bit about the uh, impact of the societal challenges you talk about on the mission of the bar. I know you're no longer president of the bar, but I, I'm working on the assumption you're still quite active with the uh, association and in, in its mission. How has the impact of the last few years, the movement for social justice, the impact of the pandemic, the increasing political polarization of D.C. and various state levels, how has that impacted the mission of the bar of the association in terms of what you're dealing with and what progress you're trying to keep moving forward and, and where you see the challenges beginning to morph? So I, I think it, it's reaffirmed our commitment to allyship. You know, I think the, the LGBTQ plus community has long because of our, you know, our small size and the societal implications of coming out, you know, prior to, you know, even today, but, but especially in the 60s, 70s and before, we needed people to help stand up for us. And so the LGBTQ plus community has always had a, a strong foundation, a strong belief in, in allyship. We as, you know, a bar association have also, you know, we, we are fairly young. We started in, in 1987 as a national LGBTQ plus bar association, as we're now called. But we have, you know, certainly worked with the other affinity bars. So the National Bar Association, the Hispanic National Bar Association, HMBA, NAPABA, Natural Filipino American Lawyer Association and others to address, you know, broader societal equity related issues. And so, you know, I've been very proud of, of the work that we have done. All of the affinity bars, for instance, came together and joined with NAPABA for a stand against hate video that we, we pushed out uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic when hate crimes against Asian Americans were, you know, first starting to surface related to COVID. And so we all understand you know, in, in the words of, of Dr. King, that we're in the boat together and that we want to achieve equity and inclusion for our members. But that is is important for achieving equity and inclusion for all. And that's, you know, especially true for the LGBTQ plus community, where our members are also members of all these other affinity groups as well. And, you know, I think the reality, unfortunately, is that our LGBTQ plus community at large hasn't always addressed racism and racial inequality. And, you know, racism still exists within the LGBTQ plus community. And we have to call it out when we see it. We have to work to eradicate it and ensure that we all focus on these issues. And so I think, you know, there's always an opportunity to do better. Uh, but these partnerships and this, this allyship that we really focus on has helped to move the ball forward. Now, my, my hope is on a broader society scale that we don't squander this opportunity that we have and we don't lose focus 
on it because I think that is a risk of moving on to to some other crises and and forgetting the really longstanding underlying crises of racial inequality that that we have to deal with and we have to address and work to eradicate. Absolutely. Focusing on the LGBTQ plus community, though, there's been uh, a lot of progress made over the years in increasing legal protections and rights for the community, but there's a lot of work left to be done. How would you see the next set of challenges in that sphere? What's the focus of the bar and where do you see the next changes coming? So one of the the policy issues that the bar leads on is called the LGBTQ plus panic defense. And so this occurs in crimes of violence, so murders and assaults, where it is a legal strategy that the defendant who is accused of murdering or assaulting an LGBTQ plus person, often a person who is trans, claims that the sudden realization or revelation of their sexual orientation or gender identity provoked the violence. So, you know, this is a classic blaming the victim for the violence approach. So we started over 10 years ago now advocating for changes to ban this defense. It's not a, a freestanding defense, but it's it's used in the defense of provocation, for instance, or self-defense. And in 2013, convinced the American Bar Association's House of Delegates to unanimously approve a resolution calling for states to ban this defense. We have had some some great success in recent years. We are now up to 16 states that have banned the defense. Uh, Virginia last year was our first uh, southern state to do so. I joined uh, Judy Shepard, the mother of Matthew Shepard and, and others in Virginia and and also testified in other states in support of this. And, and we've you know worked hand in glove with the sponsors in various states to achieve these legislative successes. We had four states that enacted it in 2021. At the same time, we do see, you know, bigotry and hate creep into the debate on these bills. I testified last year in support of a bill in New Hampshire where immediately after my testimony, virtually, one legislator said that he didn't understand why we were protecting, quote unquote, sexually deviant people with this legislation. And, you know, when he continued in this direction, the, the chair, uh, to the chair's credit, immediately gaveled to a close. The Zoom disappeared from our computer screens. A few weeks later, uh, this legislator, who was in his 80s, publicly apologized and asked to take some time for reflection. So we've come a long way in terms of LGBTQ plus acceptance. And, you know, those of us that live in metropolitan environments may sort of naively believe that the world is, is well for the LGBTQ plus community writ large, but that's, you know, certainly not the case. And there's still a lot of risks that exist, even within, you know, major metropolitan cities that are often thought of being more open and welcoming and accepting for LGBTQ plus people. Well, we're, we're out of time. Uh, you guys, your, your members and Wesley, you yourself have driven an enormous amount of change in protecting the community. And I want to thank you for that. And I know you'll continue the hard work you're doing to continue to make progress. And thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.